1: fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever and with fishing booker you can experience it too no matter where you are discover your next adventure on fishing booker ashley the e-word tattoo let's just go there first you start
2: (laughs) yeah let's go there i'll say um, it's something that you are going to hope that you can get in the future (laughs) um if you follow the same criteria that Kelly set out for getting that tattoo, and Aaron and I are on board with it as well.
1: You're all going to want one. We're talking about eradication. Um, it's a crazy word in the CWD space. Most think it's probably not possible, but we all still can hope and dream. And we agreed collectively with our last guest, Kelly Straka, that we would get tattoos that say eradication if it were eradicated. So this one was awesome. We covered the state agency perspective, we talked with Kelly Straka. The Wildlife Section Manager of the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. And she gave us a lot of perspective on how state agencies are dealing with chronic wasting disease. And she's worked in a few different states and does a lot of work with AFWA and MOFWA, the two big acronyms we talked about a lot: Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies and the Midwest Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies and is just a leading expert in the field. Um, She's a a veterinarian in her background, so she knows this thing from a lot of different angles, and, and we gleaned a lot from it.
2: Yeah, it's a great episode.
1: So enjoy it. Check it out. You get the state agency perspective on this one. Chronic wasting disease, an always fatal and definitely complex neurological disease afflicting cervids across North America and beyond.
2: More than 50 years after its discovery, the impacts of this disease are ramping up quickly while hunters are having to make tough decisions about how they hunt and feed their families.
1: What does this mean for the future of big game hunting? What can be done to stop the spread and conserve our hunting traditions?
2: The Chronic Wasting Disease Chronicles explores these issues with leading experts from around the country and looks hopefully to a future full of healthy, wild-servid populations.
1: Brought to you by NWF Outdoors and Artemis. Welcome to the Chronic Wasting Disease Chronicles. Welcome to the CWD Chronicles. This is Aaron Kindle, your host, and I'm here with my co-host, Ashley Chance. Howdy, Ashley.
2: Howdy, howdy.
1: And we have a great guest today, Kelly Straka. I'm going to introduce her a little bit more formally, but first, how's it going today, Kelly?
3: Oh, it's pretty good. I'm excited to be here, although you've already called me great. So, so now that bar has already been set, we'll see how this goes.
1: <laughs> yeah, we have a lot to live up to, but uh I'm sure you will do it. So, we'll, we'll be ready. And let me let me introduce Kelly. This is our this will be our fourth episode of the CWD Chronicles. And one of the things we really had to have was the state agency perspective. And Kelly is an expert in that for a few different reasons. Uh, But she has worked for three different state agencies is one of the reasons. And so she sees this from not just kind of a singular state dealing with it, but, but from multiple states. She's also very active in the Association for Fish and Wildlife Agencies, and and MAFWA as well, the Midwest Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. So she knows a lot of different perspectives from, from state agencies and beyond. But currently, she's the Wildlife Section Manager for Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. And she's a field biologist and a wildlife veterinarian. And she studied at the University of Minnesota and has worked for those three wildlife agencies I mentioned. And we're going to start this out because she actually ended up doing a lot of her academic work because of CWD. And so before without any further ado, Kelly, I'm going to let you just talk about your career path to working uh with CWD and then we'll we'll dive in.
3: Yeah, thanks for that, Aaron. It's uh you know, it's one of those things. I don't know if I should actually be be excited about it or or proud of it, but it's, it's the reality. And I think there's a lot of people out there that don't realize um, that I'm not the only one. I'm not the only person certainly that has um, been dealing with this disease as a significant part of their, of their professional career for a long time. So yeah, just like you mentioned, Aaron, I, um, I did have a great academic background. I was, I was fortunate to, to have great uh, opportunities presented to me academically. So I did get my, I have a bachelor's of science degree in fisheries and wildlife management. I was a wildlife biologist for several years here in Minnesota, working uh, with Ducks Unlimited and, and the DNR to do some work with waterfowl and waterfowl habitats. Uh, I'll fast forward so we don't dwell on this too long, but um, but I did also, uh, I was here in Minnesota when chronic wasting disease was first detected in Wisconsin in 2002. And, and Minnesota subsequently started doing a lot of surveillance for CWD. And so while I was, you know, just this happy little, happy-go-lucky um, field specialist. I started getting involved in helping out with some of our CWD surveillance efforts in the state. And and it, it occurred to me pretty rapidly, pretty early on, that especially back in 02, there was a lot we didn't know about CWD, you know, and, the, and there were significantly more questions than answers. And while most people... Um, of any intelligence would would just turn to i don't know the interwebs or a book to start learning more about this disease i was like no i want to i want to go ahead first in this and so i was actually um, living on the side of a volcano in hawaii i realize i made a jump but i was living on the side of a volcano in hawaii when i decided to go back to vet school and it was because i really wanted to understand CWD, as well as the other variety of, of wildlife health concerns out there. So I did, I, I went back to vet school. Um, at the same time, I pursued a master's in public health. And and I, I did that so I could really get a better handle on what we know and what we don't know about CWD and other wildlife health issues. So yeah, I've been dealing with it for a long time. And it's uh, it's a different background, I'm sure.
1: Well, that's a good, uh, segue. And I, and I feel like on podcasts, I say that too much. That's a good segue, but it just is, um, to, to how we're going to talk about this today, because for folks who don't know, and I think most listeners probably do, but, uh, state wildlife agencies are the managers of the majority of our wildlife in this country. Um, including all the cervids for the most part, um, maybe maybe in certain places like northern Idaho with caribou or something where they're endangered, uh, you know, the federal agencies may come in. But for the cervids, state wildlife agencies uh, are the managers. And so, so much of this CWD burden lies with them. So, you know, I think to start out, Kelly, let's just give you a chance to frame the issue from the state wildlife agency perspective, you know, as you see fit.
3: Yeah, that's a really it's a really good intro to this and and it's going to be hard. So, you're absolutely right. So, so within state agencies, you know, we have this responsibility, right? We have this responsibility to manage not only the wildlife populations but the habitats that that they live in um for the benefit of of everyone, you know? And so within the state um we could spend we could spend all day talking about the public trust doctrine and you know and what we try to do as managers and and um, and agency employees but the the bottom line is that we are trying to manage these populations for the benefit of of all of the people as well as the benefit of the animals themselves. so anytime you have a disease introduced into a population, whatever that disease is um, certainly those managers want to figure out how to mitigate that you know how do we how do we sort of combat some of these pressures that are, are facing our wildlife populations and so you know you can go down the road of of looking at habitat projects to combat habitat loss or or mitigation techniques to combat invasive species but when you're dealing with a disease um it changes the game a little bit because your your tools are going to be different, you know, depending on the individual disease. So CWD is definitely a unique one. Um, it has been said, and I, I know it's been said across the board by many different entities that CWD might be the, the most pressing issue, certainly facing cervid populations across the country right now. So, um, yeah, it's something that I, I think is talked about within state wildlife agencies to some extent every day across our country.
2: Well, I'd like to first point out that it would be appropriate for us to call you Dr. Straka, correct?
3: (laughs) fancy. I'll take it. (laughs) Sure, but honestly, Um, I mean Kelly is fine. But yes.
2: Well, I just wanted to underscore the fact that you did a complete—not a complete, but a a one hundred and eighty on your career—to go back and really get the gold standard of credentials, you know, professional credentials around not just the animal side of this, but the human side. So I just wanted to underscore that point that we're talking to a true expert here. Um, And I think that our listeners, one of the things I feel like, sorry, let me back up. When I started undergrad, I also have a, a bachelor and a master's degree in wildlife. And when I started my undergraduate program, I don't know that I... I fully understood how state wildlife agencies functioned, you know, how they were funded, what their role was, the barriers that they faced to doing the task that they're meant to do. Um, and I feel like maybe today there's still a lot of sports women and men out there that don't have a super strong understanding of that. And I think that... That's critical in it's it's critical knowledge for us to have and a critical base to work from when we talk about issues like CWD and how it can how it is being dealt with, how it could be dealt with better, things of that nature. So can we talk about the barriers to effective management? I mean, one thing that jumps out to me is you talking about as a as a waterfowl biologist, you part of your job became dealing with CWD. I think that just really illustrates how big this is for agencies.
3: Yeah, I'm actually glad you picked up on that. And to tell you the truth, I hadn't even picked up on it when I said it. So I uh first of all, I do want to I want you, I want your listeners to know that like um I can see I can see you two right now, right? Like I can see Ashley and Aaron, but I realize that this is a podcast, so you're not going to be able to see us. But it's one of the things I really like about this discussion is that like I do feel like we're, we're doing one of those campfire talks. Like even as you were talking just now, actually like I'm leaning back in my chair. I've got my coffee. Like, you know, we're just, we're hanging out having casual conversations. So I, I just wanted your listeners to realize that like at least in my mind, I'm gonna let you into my mind for a minute. I don't have anything scripted here. I'm not, I'm not running off of, I don't have any questions in advance or anything. So um, this is always a little scary because I'm susceptible to rambling. So that's what I'm trying to set already. But okay, when you start talking about Um, some of the barriers for managing CWD specifically. And so this is not going to be a huge overview on, you know, um, challenges of of being part of a state agency, but specific to managing this disease, you hit on a couple of really important points. First of all is the financial one. You know, we can't, we can't have this conversation without talking about that. Um, It is financially extremely expensive for Not only the management of CWD, but the surveillance of CWD. And those two things, I want to be really clear, are are different. We can talk about this later if you want, but surveillance is not management. In other words, expending a lot of resources for CWD surveillance, which is in and of itself extremely expensive, um, is going to do nothing to mitigate the spread of the disease, right? So just testing for something, although it is extremely important to inform our management, it it doesn't stand alone as a management technique. And so there's almost this like perception out there that, well, if you just, you know, all you have to do is test and test and test and test and test and and, and find the disease. Okay. We absolutely have to do that to inform the management of the disease. But just testing is by its very nature retroactive, right? It means that we're not going to be able to do anything until the disease has already been there. So that's one, one point I wanted to bring up. Um, when we start talking about barriers to this disease, barriers to effective management, it is financially very expensive to do surveillance to even look at the management, which is also very expensive. So, financially, we certainly can talk about that a little bit more. But, but um, we're talking about millions of dollars every year, you know. And and I remember in in Michigan, our our CWD surveillance management one year alone, we estimated cost over four million dollars. That's a lot. That's a lot of money that is going to one particular issue that couldn't be spent elsewhere, right? And wildlife agencies have this whole breadth of responsibilities for species, for habitats, for, for recreational opportunity. And so to have to funnel so much into one little thing, it it becomes extremely challenging. The other thing you touched on, and you're absolutely right, is, is the staff. So this is one thing that I really, um, I, I really hope that people can get out of this conversation is the fact that CWD surveillance and management, um, When it has to be done by the state wildlife agencies, the number of people that's that's involved is astounding. And the amount of fatigue that people are facing because they're dealing with something that, you know, is often outside of their own area of expertise or often outside of their own area of interest or or whatever that may be. But I mean, we're yeah, we're asking fisheries biologists to come out and help collect lymph nodes. We're asking administrative specialists to you know spend a lot of time looking at data entry for CWD. We're, we're really pulling in all the stops because no agency has that I know of has an entire team just to work on CWD like a, a team that can handle it all, right? The amount of resources it takes is astonishing. And so um, I think that's just one of the things I wanted to, to get across is the amount of um, work that's done by everybody in a state agency at all levels. You know, uh, I've had deputy directors on the necropsy floor with me, literally cutting open deer, which they don't enjoy doing. It wasn't exactly what they like to do. And yet, you know, everyone's kind of of rallying and doing it. And so we talk about, I don't know if it's actually come up in any of your podcasts so far, but we talk a lot about fatigue with CWD and disease fatigue in general and how we're so worried that hunters are inundated, you know, like we as hunters are inundated with all these messages about CWD and it can become so exhausting and so overwhelming the 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 agency folks are feeling that too, and so it's kind of like one of those man. We all got to rally together on this because we all have to support each other, and and any infighting just makes it a heck of a lot worse. So um, I don't know. Ash, I don't know if that if that really touched on even what your original question was. If you want me to talk a little bit more about barriers or or financial limitations or anything else, what do you got? What are you thinking?
2: I mean, I think those are certainly two of the big hitters right there that you talked about the financial and emotional toll. I know, I don't know if I mentioned this in any of our other episodes either, but when I lived in Mississippi, when they discovered CWD there, my husband actually was a private lands biologist with the state wildlife agency. And his, he's a habitat guy. He really loves to talk and think about plants and interactions with wildlife and a large portion of his job duties shifted to stopping at every dead deer he drove past in his normal work duties to cut it open on the side of the road, right? And pull lymph nodes and among other things. So yeah, I just want to, I think it's good to highlight that that fatigue is real. And I think, you know, the public in general now, whatever year into this pandemic we are, I don't know, we understand, we have a good sense of what that fatigue can do and feel like um, on a grand scale. And CWD, we're looking at decades, you know, and depending on the state you're in. It can look a lot different. And I think it also, I'm going on a tangent here, but different states have different levels of resources, right? Um, so I think that impacts everything as well. Um, one of the other things that I would like to touch on is how, as part of the hunting public, how th- hunters can help or hinder efforts to manage CWD. And I know this is contextual and it's going to depend state to state, but if you could talk a little about that.
3: Yeah, I think that's a great topic. Um, so this was, I think you you touched on this for, for any of the listeners here that that didn't catch your uh, podcast with Kip Adams from NDA. You know, he talked quite a bit. If, if you haven't caught it, please, by all means, do listen. I, I thought he did a really good job of laying out the specific, you know, some specific tangible things that we as hunters can do to help. Um, and that is, Incredibly important. I think the, the truth is with this particular disease is that it presents so many challenges in and of itself. You know, it's, um, it, it's a hidden disease. You know, the way I look at it is that this is a really hidden issue a lot of times. You, you've got the, the perfect storm of things you don't want in a disease. You've got the long incubation times, the fact of the matter that in most populations, um, there's generally speaking, going to be generally speaking, again, more healthy animals than, than infected animals. And so how do you communicate that to people? You don't see big die-offs like you do with other wildlife diseases like EHD, you know, that epizootic hemorrhagic disease where we see just a lot of dead deer. You don't see that. So, so that's a challenge for us as hunters to, to really take this disease seriously and, and, and want to do something about it when you don't see it, you know, you, you get bombarded with messages about how important it is, but you're not seeing it. So CWD in and of itself is divisive. I get that. But, um, but it's important that we realize that if, if we're going to have any hope of really mitigating this disease, um, we have to come together on it. And and this is not only agency people, not only hunters, wildlife watchers, everybody. You know, we as a society have to come together um, and appreciate the importance of it. And, you know, and as again, as you talked with Kip, the, the tools that we have, they're hard. It's a hard pill to swallow. The tools that we have require us as hunters and and even deer producers and again wildlife watchers, we have to change some of our most beloved traditions. You know, I know Kip talked quite a bit about um and, and Ashley, I think you talked about even having to to bone out meat in the field, you know, to to not move live animals, to not move those high-risk carcass parts. Um if you are in a CWD surveillance area, or if your state agency is looking for samples for surveillance, you know, to to figure out how am I going to to drive 25 minutes out of my way to drop off a lymph node sample or why do i have to pay for this for this testing and and what do you mean i have to now change how i get rid of my carcass i can't leave it on the landscape or i have to bring it somewhere special i mean so these are all these little practices that are part of these traditions that we all hold so dear that you know we don't want to change but i would argue i would argue that sportsmen and women are actually phenomenally adaptable because we've done it before. you know we did it in the early 90s when when lead ammunition was banned for waterfowl. We changed, you know because we had to and um, and I don't want to make parallels between CWD and and the risks with with lead across the landscape. I don't want to make parallels there, but the fact of the matter is like we are adaptable and once we as sportsmen and women realize, that this is so important and so true. And we stop just the, the infighting really like when we all understand that this is what's best for the resources we care about, I would argue that we absolutely can, can adopt some of those changes that we need to, you know, the ones that you outlined in a previous podcast, you know, there's a, there's a saying that at every crossroads on the path to the future, um, Tradition will place ten thousand men to guard the past. And that's not a gender thing. That is not a gender thing. It's just the same, and and it, <laughs> it's clarify. just it's it's true, right? Like it's not a gender thing. I swear. But I think there's a truth to it. I think we are inherently wired to continue to practice our traditions as we were taught, and um, and we can change that though. We can, and and we can, you know, as a mom to two little boys, I can teach them some of those practices that will help prevent not only, you know, um, the introduction of disease to an area, but, but, you know, hopefully slow down some of the trajectory that disease is already moving towards when it's already present on the landscape. So, yeah, I mean, you know, whether it's whether it's carcass movement or or proper disposal or whether it's even feeding and baiting. I know you guys touched on that, too. Like these are practices that we know can make things worse. And so the second that we as hunters like, all right, I will change what I do. Um, in order to have a positive benefit, man, that's, we're going to be a heck of a lot better than we are now.
1: I appreciate that, Kelly. And one of the things I want to dive into is, you know, kind of the federal state intersection. And, and I say that because, you know, I think everybody can realize, okay, we got state agencies and they have their budgets and, you know, they get a lot of their budgets from Hunter Angler dollars. We, we kind of get that but this is certainly does not respect state lines. Um, it, it it goes all over the place. It transfers. You need interstate coordination. You need a bigger response than just one state can handle. Um, and so I think particularly with your background with AFWA, which I think I said it, but the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, and for folks who don't know, this is kind of all of them get together and discuss common problems and solutions. And, and they talk about CWD every time they get together. Um, let's, let's unpack that a little bit, like the regulatory issues, the, the jurisdictional issues, you know, what are you seeing in that realm that, that is really, you know, that really has a big bearing on how we deal with this, both, you know, from the funding side, cause you already mentioned that, but also just, you know, that the turfy stuff that sometimes comes around and, you know, I don't want to make too much of that, but I, I do know, you know, every manager kind of knows their spot and they don't. I didn't really love anybody else coming in and saying, hey, you should do this and you should do this differently. That kind of a thing.
3: Dude, this is such a good, this is good. Like I feel, I really honestly feel right now, like you just kind of like lobbed one up for me and I hope I can do this justice because this is the (laughs) one up. So so. so this disease sucks. I mean, I'm going to say it, it sucks, but there are there are tiny slivers of hope and this is one that i think is actually bigger than a tiny sliver this is like a lightning bolt of positivity and so i'm going to i'm going to run with this one for a minute we have good news i have seen i've been you know i think um god i almost said intimately working with and that just sounded inappropriate i have been close with CWD for several years right like so we're going on like a decade okay it's been over a decade but i want to feel younger okay So for 10 years, I have kind of been involved uh, with a state agency, keep in mind, always in the Midwest. So I am, I I don't want to pretend to be an expert, certainly on what's going on in our Western states or or other regions. But okay, I have seen a distinct shift in CWD management Um, from a state agency perspective. I've seen a distinct shift to this acknowledgement of, yeah, what happens within our state borders if it's inconsistent with neighboring states, certainly at least in a regional perspective, is going to make things a lot harder. It's confusing for hunters. It's inconsistent from state to state. And like you mentioned, Aaron, I mean, this disease does not respect state boundaries, right? So certainly each state is a little bit different. It's important people realize that each agency has got different resources. So there's gonna be a little bit of nuance there, but the importance is this need to have a broader geographic scale that we have the conversation on how do we manage these diseases? I would argue, and this is certainly arguable, that what happens in the Midwest though is pretty different than what might happen have to happen in the West. But that's because there are so many differences there, even geographically, even our servants behave differently, right? So we have different species, we have different, you know, migration patterns. The, the animals themselves are different uh, between regions, certainly. And so it's important to realize that the densities are really different. So, Either way, one of the things that I've seen is this shift. And so I'll, I'll talk about the Midwest for just a minute. The Midwest Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies is the sort of umbrella organization that incorporates 13 states in the Midwest and three Canadian provinces. Now, um, the the relationships there from what I've seen are strong. And certainly that's not only at a leadership level, but at a technical level. So my background as a wildlife veterinarian and in, in, in the wildlife health field, I mean, I got to know very, very closely the not only the wildlife health specialists, also in the Midwest region, but the deer biologists, right? And so our communications were were great. I mean, you know, we were we were talking regularly. We were figuring out, hey, what are you doing about this? What are you doing with this regulation? What are you doing with this management tool? Um, there's definitely this this recognition that we needed to have some consistency to fight this disease because that again is going to be the best chance we have. Um, that recognition wasn't limited to the technical levels. It's actually been going up to really high levels in the agencies. So the Midwest directors um, voted to kind of put together this CWD task force, right, to really work at the regional level at how do we provide some consistent recommendations, consistent regulations, consistent management actions, even how do we sort of have some consistent surveillance so we can make sure we're all doing the best job we can with our resources, to fight this disease. So I've seen that. I've seen that grow, which I think is really um, exciting. That's not, the fact that that's grown in the Midwest is not limited to the Midwest. We also have the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, WAFWA, which is just kind of a funny word to say. So I, I would encourage all of your listeners, the next time you're sitting around a campfire, hopefully with a tin cup of something delicious, you can start saying WAFWA over and over. And you will too find it to be a really funny acronym. So not to make fun of them, my esteemed colleagues in the West but waffle is a funny word either way, waffle put out a set of adaptive management recommendations for CWD that was kind of a region-wide guidance document and so that's out there it's publicly available you can you know you can find it pretty easily but but again taking more of a regional approach which I think is helpful now the one thing I did want to bring up today because Erin, you just asked about it, and I was actually on a meeting this morning, like this morning, um, when you start talking about state and federal partnerships. That has been also another lightning bolt of good news in that I've seen significantly more engagement um, between state and federal agencies and uh in recent years. Um, so this is going to be, we're entering our third year where there is something called cooperative agreements for chronic wasting disease, where these are state, federal, and tribal partnerships um, where funding has been made available through the federal government to really needle down to some of the things that have to happen with CWD, whether it's you know, looking at different management actions, whether it's looking at research, whether it's designing better surveillance, um, it's be- basically a funding call. And, and either state agencies, state wildlife or state agriculture agencies can apply for these funds, um, as well as individual tribes or tribal organizations can apply for these funds. Last year, it was six million dollars. This year, they're still working on finalizing the budget, but we expect that call to come out within the next week or so. Um, but either way, that that's that's a funding opportunity using federal funds to really try for the states to say, hey, these are the priorities to really try to kneel down to what do we need to help our you know expand our management tools. There's a lot happening there. So that's exciting. The last thing I wanted to say is um, those funds I talked about were largely provided through USDA. Um, but the Department of the Interior has also really stepped up recently. And so Department of the Interior, that includes Fish and Wildlife Service, that includes USGS, that includes a number of other leadership, leadership, federal leadership organizations, has teamed up with USDA. And USDA, which is the United States Department of Agriculture, right, has also pulled in their. Um, the U.S. Forest Service has pulled in, Agricultural Research Service has pulled in, um, Farm Services Agency as well as the Natural Resource Conservation Service. I know I'm just rambling right now and listing these organizations off, but I want to give them all credit. They've teamed up to create their own federal CWD task force, and so they're finalizing their charter. They are talking monthly, but the point of that whole group is to talk about how they, they can better, the federal government can better serve state needs. And that, I think, is really exciting, right? And so we're starting to see these partnerships um, across the board. That group is also giving money to the National Academies of Sciences, to do a a resource study on CWD. And so that statement of work is still in development too. But um, either way, I think that's one of the things that we've seen over the recent years is kind of a a big growth um, in, in federal involvement. And I realized I mentioned in passing some of our tribal partners and that's, that's a particular group that I think um, is often not talked about in the CWD arena. And, and I have been extremely fortunate to form a few research projects and, and certainly to start to to form some relationships with, with tribal partners. And that's a, a whole nother arena that I am excited to have those folks in the conversation too, because they're an important partner in this.
1: And just a plug before Ashley asks a question, because I know she has one, is that this is a lot of the things you just mentioned would be so bolstered by the CWD Research and Management Act that we have floating through Uh, Congress right now. Um, And our next guest is going to be Representative Kine, the uh, original co-sponsor from Wisconsin. So look for that. I was just going to throw a little shameless plug in there, Kelly. But a lot of those things you talked about will be very bolstered. We'll get about $14 million a year over the next five years that'll flood into those kinds of cooperative projects.
3: Yeah, no. Th- thanks yeah, for reaching out. I'm, I'm really excited to hear that too. Sorry, Ashley, I just cut you off. But, um, but no, I'm I'm really excited to hear Representative Kind as well. And that's that's definitely been a bill that we've been following for quite some time. So sorry, Ashley. Go ahead.
2: No, you're good. I, money can't solve all of our problems, but it would go a long way in helping out with this one, right? Um, I think I would like to. CWD is is a broad issue. It spans a huge geographic range at this point, unfortunately, but a really neat example that I would love to talk a little bit about is Wisconsin and Minnesota. Um, I think, you know, they're, I'm, I'm from Minnesota. I did my um, undergraduate education in Wisconsin. So both are home to me, um, but they're right next to each other and they've had very divergent paths relative to CWD. And I think as we talk about you know, CWD not recognizing borders and trying to come together from a little bit of a higher level perspective and have a broader geographic impact. Um, can you just talk a little bit about, and I know that you weren't necessarily a part of all of this because you're relatively new to your position in Minnesota, um, but can you talk a little bit about how Minnesota's approach was able to get, get us to where we are today in that state? Because I think Things are looking pretty good. I mean, relative to what they could be on the ground there.
3: Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question, and 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 you're right. I mean, just so your listeners understand, you know, I've been I'm I consider myself a Minnesota girl, but I was in Missouri and then over in Michigan, and so I just came back here to Minnesota, and I'm in this role, um, sort of as leading the entire wildlife section, uh, which is new, right? This is this is new. Um, so I came from, you know, certainly leading the wildlife health group in Michigan to to leading the wildlife section in Minnesota, which is exciting. But I just came and started doing that this fall. So this was my first fall, really, um, with the agency and and working with our. Our staff to see how we're handling surveillance and management with CWD, and, and the thing that I will say, and I've I've known this for years, just watching Minnesota as you know as it was my home state, um, watching the wildlife health recommendations coming out here, and 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 the deer recommendations coming out here, and um, Minnesota has responded extremely aggressively to the detections of CWD in the state, and so we do have an area of what we consider persistent affection persistent infection down in the southeastern corner of this state, we're thinking that that prevalence there is around 1%. That's significantly different than, you know, certainly what our colleagues in Wisconsin are dealing with. And I know you've talked a little bit um, on previous episodes of this podcast, talking about some of the differences in response between Wisconsin and Illinois, um, and how those two states first detected the disease at relatively the same time point but their trajectories were really different right and their management response has been really different so in minnesota again we've been we've been aggressive but i i think that the um one of the things that this 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 state has done really well and i again take zero credit for it because i was not here um but but this the state agency the dnr here was extremely transparent from what I could tell um, with the hunters in, in explaining, Hey, look, like, this is why we want to do, or this is what we want to do. And this is why, or this is what we need to do. And this is why. And so there's been um, I think really good engagement the whole time. I mean, I hate to say it, but you know, we detected it several years in the wild, several years after some of our neighboring States. And so unfortunately for them, but fortunately for us, we could learn from some of the mistakes there. You know, and 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 acknowledge, hey, we have to do things a little bit differently because if we lose hunter support or if we don't have it from the beginning, we're dead in the water. You know, we I, I don't think there's anyone who doesn't realize that the management tools for this disease once it's found are limited, and they're not things that we want to do as a veterinarian. You know, having to go in and recommend um, even a localized targeted removal of deer, knowing. Knowing that that is going to be our best chance to remove positive animals from a localized, small geographic scale, Um, knowing that that's our best chance at removing positive animals, while at the same time we know we're going to be removing perfectly healthy animals, that's a gutting decision. It's, It's something nobody wants to do, but it's our best chance. And so I think... I think again, when you ask about you know how Minnesota has been, what I would argue is successful in 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 mitigating the spread of this disease, We know we have it here, but how have we kept it relatively under control? It's because we have the support of our hunters of our landowners. You know, our outreach staff has gone above and beyond to explain why we're recommending this. I mean we're going on several years now of doing these really aggressive management actions you know we have we have disease management tags in our disease zones for a dollar fifty you know, and and you can harvest buck or a doe. I mean, you know, we have really liberalized regulations and that, that can be hard for people to stomach. Um, But again, it's like, you know, if you can just get the support of people and if you can really spend the time it takes to explain why you're doing what you're doing, I think that's, that's absolutely crucial.
2: I'm so glad you landed on that as one of the defining one of the defining features of Minnesota's trajectory because I feel the same. I mean, I'm also on the outside looking in, I don't work for the Minnesota DNR, Um, but I feel like using a fancy word, the dialogic model, I think would be the appropriate term for management. (laughs) That popped into my brain as I was writing the notes for this episode. I told Aaron, I'm not hundred percent sure this is the word, but I think it is. Um, And just describing, you know, a, 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 dialogue really a conversation between the management agency and the hunting public. And I know Minnesota has as far as I know above and beyond a lot of other states and they have like deer season regulation meetings, localized meetings around the state that hunters can come to and and voice their their concerns their desires you know what's going well, what's not and I think there's so much to be learned by other state agencies. I mean there's others that are doing this as well um, but I think this is the way of the future you know it's kind of a shift from the top down approach of years past and i think that it's just the success of it is evident in this example and i i commend the minnesota dnr for doing that everybody involved in you know shaping the way that they're doing things and i hope that other states can see the value in that and really as they're able make an effort to approach things in a similar way
1: as part of that kelly can we talk to uh you know just a little bit about minnesota's response plan they have a pretty comprehensive plan and Ashley just touched on a couple of those elements. There's some other things like, you know, management applications in different zones and, you know, different strategies that you all are using. Maybe you can utilize that what what Ashley just asked and tag on what I'm what I'm asking here to to talk a little bit more about Minnesota's plan and how it works.
3: Yeah, for sure. This is, um, and for any of your listeners that don't know, I mean, this is it's it's available online. It is publicly available on our website. Uh, it was most recently updated in twenty nineteen. So that's kind of another thing that's that that Minnesota has going for it too is that um, we did, and again, it was before I was here, but but we did take the 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 time and the <laughs> the dedication it takes to update and and develop a comprehensive um, state plan right so it does incorporate both surveillance and management I already talked about how those things are are different but they're they're hand in hand um, one of the strengths of Minnesota's plan and I I can say this again because I take none credit but I was in Michigan watching them go through the the plan or the um you know the generation the update of the plan. One of the things I really like about it is that it acknowledges that, um, that we have to be somewhat adaptive with our management recommendations, right? Because uh, it's important to be aggressive, to respond um, as well as you can, to bring, bring your public along with you the whole time and, and understand what you're doing. The plan itself, for anyone that looks at it, really breaks down, these are our proposed responses depending on what we find. Right. From year to year. And so if if our findings change, our management actions are going to change. And so it lays everything out. And so what we can say is, OK, when we have a new detection in an area, you know what we're going to do in advance, what we're going to propose in advance, because it's all here in the plan. And so it lays out what we're going to do about putting in a feeding ban or a I mean, a baiting ban. I'm sorry, or a feeding ban uh, or a attractant ban. So that's that we do have attracted bands here in Minnesota that we put in some of our areas. And so you can see basically anybody can open up this document and say, oh, okay, we found CWD and and our monitoring suggests it's at X percent prevalence. Then we can anticipate these are the management actions that are going to be employed. And so I think that um, that level of transparency, that level of openness, um, not that everyone's going to agree with it, but I think it's really important to put it out there. But, you know, Ashley, you touched on too the. the, con- the importance of conversation with with the public, you know, and being open about all of that. I think that's another thing, you know, when I talk about these sort of like slivers of sunshine and this otherwise phenomenally drab and dreary and miserable disease, um, the fact that we have started to collectively incorporate a lot more of our, our, our human dimensions work or our you know, communications people, outreach people, marketing people. So so everyone to help us get this message out. I think when all of this started, it was like, you're almost trying to beat people overhead with the science, you know, and we're just going to have these meetings and it's going to be a lecture. I'm going to come and I'm going to teach you about prion science. That's not going to be Love fun. that. <laughs> you know, right? Like I'm going to beat you over the head with whether or not we're dealing with like an alpha helix or a beta pleated sheet. Nobody cares. The fact of the matter is like, we need to have a conversation on this is what we want to do. And this is why, and can you come with us on this journey? Because this is so important for all of us. So I think that shift has also been um, hopefully one of the the positives in this.
2: All right. I'm speaking of shifts. I feel like you are the best person to ask this question of because of your kind of dual background and, um, relative to the disease i've heard i think early on aaron and i were putting together some of the background information for this series and he wrote somewhere uh, something he used the word eradication for cwd and my gut reaction was right away it can't be eradicated and then as question as we've gone, through, yeah, as we've gone through this i thought <laughs> there's some people that are kind of hopeful and can you please tell us your take is eradication feasible
3: I legitimately used the E word yesterday in a CWD meeting. And like, even I was like, "Ah." there's that little part of me that was like, don't say it. Don't say it. Okay. This is what I will say. God, I really should have had a script for this. I should have been. Okay. No, this is what I will say about the E word. Um, Again, for many years, I think that was the goal of that was the stated goal. If we go back to some of the earlier CWD plans, they were CWD eradication plans, right? They were like, how do we get this off the landscape? Um, That was ambitious. And I'm a firm believer in being ambitious in life. I'm also a rabid believer, which might actually be a step up from firm, a rabid believer in the fact that we have to be realistic and the fact that we have to be, um, use our best available science to guide us on what our goals should even be. So if you were to ask me, okay, Dr. Straka, or call me Kelly. Okay, Kelly, if can we eradicate CWD from the United States? I'm gonna tell you not with our current tools. It, we're not getting rid of it. So um, is it possible if the disease is detected early enough, is it possible to respond in such a way that we could actually for lack of a better word sort of snuff out a really local early infection. Yes. I would say yes. It is possible. There's a really good paper, I think it's I think it was back in 2016 now maybe with um by Dr. Mike Miller and Dr. John Fisher, two to you know um sort of patriarchs of this field, just both Unbelievable guys in their own right. Um, but they wrote a really good paper about lessons learned. I think it was called Lessons Learned about CWD. And, and one of the important things is your first case is never your first case, right? Like you detect CWD in a landscape, it's not the only deer there with that disease or out there with that disease. I mean, this is your first case is never truly one and one case. We do have a couple of examples. Minnesota was an example for a long time. New York continues to be an example where. Early surveillance and aggressive immediate response led to what we think you know, was a local elimination of disease from that area. We do have a couple of examples of that. But I would say the vast majority of the time and what we should all be prepared for is when you find the disease, you're going to have to fight it for a long time. That leads you to have a couple of decisions. Do you want to just learn to live with it? Do you want to use every single tool you can possibly think of? And and fight that disease, or are you gonna fall somewhere in the middle? And, and that's where I think it's so important to be able to communicate the importance of this with the people in that area, not just the hunters, but the local landowners, the wildlife watchers, everybody. Like we all have to say, okay, we found this. Let's use the tools that we have to, to, to the best of our ability, characterize the level of infection here, and then make the recommendations to at least try to mitigate that disease. But the big E, I, I think we've seen a shift. I have also for years, and I'll just put this out there because I continue to see it and it does make me a little nervous. We talk, um, certainly agencies talk about the importance of containment with this disease, right? We're going to create a containment zone or we're going to try to contain the disease. I worry that that also sets us up for a little bit of a failure or it sets us up for failure because we, we presume to therefore know exactly where those boundaries are. And the second you have a detection one mile past your containment zone, it's looked at as a failure. And so I think that's, I don't think that's fair. You know, I mean, I think the reality is that we do the very best thing we can to understand the footprint of the disease, but to stand up and say, we're going to contain it in this five mile radius, it's hard. I mean, that's, that, that to me is not the most um, realistic approach to take.
1: Well, Kelly, you either you either set us up for failure or success on this next question because
3: Whoa, we, that's nerve wracking.
1: We, we wanted to ask you further about that. In that, you know, it, so if we can't get the big E, um, you know, what does it look like in the future? What a healthy servid, you know, is there such thing as a healthy servid population that's also positive? You know, how do we live with it? What do we look to in the future, presuming we can't eradicate it? You know, are we there? Do we already kind of know? Is there more we need to do? You know, it's a big question, but I think, I think for a lot of us, it's the question of this whole entire thing. How are we going to live with this? How are we going to go forward? How are we going to still have, you know, the awesome sporting traditions of hunting these cervid species and, and, and just having them as an awesome wildlife species, you know, family in our, in our country. But Probably not going to eradicate it. So how do we live with it?
3: You know, it's it's we're, funny. We're only I, asking
2: easy questions. Today. Yeah,
3: I brought, like yeah. Thanks, you guys, for the softballs. This is really appreciated. I I love that. Um, so I can't help but think there's that little part of me that's like I'm pretty sure that 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 question that you just framed, Erin. I'm I'm pretty sure that question has been posed to a number of public health experts on a very different disease issue that we are all. Very unfortunately, all too familiar with right now, um, understanding that we're in the midst of a global pandemic, which I'm not going to dwell on here, but but keep in mind the whole, how do we live with it? You know, if we can't get rid of it, how do we live with it? Um, that question, I, I want to bring it back to just CWD specifically. So I, I do, I do have thoughts on this. So if we can't eradicate it, if if we really can't get rid of CWD in our um very beloved, disturbed populations, what can we do? There's there's a lot we can do. I, I would contend there's a lot we can do. And throwing up our hands and walking away or shoving our heads deeper in the sand is not is not a recommended action. One thing we can do is we know that even though the disease may exist in your state, it doesn't exist everywhere. So certainly there are actions we can take to prevent new infections, right? That, that's a lot of the things that you talked to Kip about. That's a lot of the things that Dr. Gillen referenced in the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies Best Management Practices. Those things that we can do as, as sportsmen and women to prevent the spread of the disease, the introduction of the disease to new areas. So I still think that prevention, even if the disease exists, prevention still matters. You know, we certainly can employ behaviors and, and practices um, to prevent the infection. The second thing we can do is really focus on, again, some of those things, some of those actions that are recommended in order to not make it worse where it currently exists. So working with your state agencies to do to do some of the management actions that they want to do to, again, locally impact the spread of the disease, that still matters. So just because it's there doesn't mean that we can just stand back and let it win um, and let it run its course. Like that's That's not smart, you know, and what we're seeing time and time again is if it's left completely unabated, if we do nothing, the do nothing approach allows it to continue to grow and continue to grow. And that's where we start to see these impacts that certainly they're seeing in in localized herds across the country. So um, there's a lot of research about that, and and I'm sure you guys have seen it, too, you know, population impacts, um, reproduction impacts certainly even the the abundance of seeing some of our older age class of surveys on the landscape, we see those impacts if the disease is unabated. So while we not, might not be able to eradicate it, we certainly can take actions to prevent new, new introductions and sl- slow the spread of the disease where it does exist.
2: So I want to touch back to surveillance briefly here. But we're nearing the end of our hour, but I think that It was told to me, uh, this is a long time ago, but I have a little math situation here that I'm going to try to illustrate. It's tough to do that, I think, um, over a podcast, but I just want to try to highlight the challenges around surveillance and how hard it is to detect the disease when it's present, especially in low numbers. So... I'm going to set this up and then Kelly, please comment on it or correct me if you, if you feel like that's uh, warranted. So if we're talking just about an area, that's like a 10 square mile radius. So like a really small area on the landscape, if there's 30 deer per square mile, that means there's 9,000 deer in that 10 mile radius. If CWD is present there at a 1% prevalence, which is pretty high, right? Like that's what you cited as the, the, I don't know what you call it, the containment, the CWD zone for Minnesota down there in the southeast corner, 1% is a high prevalence rate. That means there's, I believe, you'd have to take 310 samples to try to detect that 1% prevalence on the landscape. So thinking of getting 310 samples from a 10-mile radius, that's that's a small area that's really hard to do. And when you extrapolate that to an entire state, I mean honestly, I'm shocked that any state has ever detected this disease before it was at a much higher prevalence.
3: Yeah. Yeah. That's I. Yeah. So I, I'm not going to correct your math there. I, I, you know, it would, it would take me a little while, but that I would absolutely believe that. So here's, here's the kicker about surveillance. Well, there's many kickers, trust me, but, um, one of the things, so, so yes, you talk about the 1% prevalence. Um, that's what we have in, in, in Minnesota, you know, in our persistent area, we certainly obviously across the country see significantly higher prevalence levels than that. You know, we've, we've talked about that. Um, um, so that there are, there are areas, especially, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about Wisconsin, sorry guys, but you know, Wisconsin's got some areas of really high prevalence where you're looking at anywhere from 40 to 60%, you know, um, when you start talking about surveillance, the, 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 one of the, the resonating messages is that a deer is not a deer. And what I mean by that is that there's been a lot of work over the years by very brilliantly minded epidemiologists and biostatisticians to say, okay, how are we going to, man, I hate this cliche, but like, how do we sample smarter, not harder? I, again, I hate that cliche. I'm sorry. I know, but, but how do we really maximize our resources um, to look for this disease? And I would use this analogy, like, I might regret this. This might be a terrible analogy, but if you really wanted to understand no, I can't even go down that road. Honestly, it'll be embarrassing and it'll haunt me the rest of my career. Either way, it's it's if you've got a population of deer, which deer do you have to test to have the greatest chance at detecting the disease, right? Because if I go into those 9,000 deer from your hypothetical example and just pull out 310 deer at random, each one of those deer has a different likelihood of being exposed to CWD largely based on their behavior, um, whether or not they have a, an immediate family member that's positive for the disease, uh, their age, the longer they're on the landscape, the more likely they are to be exposed to things like CWD. So certainly there are different factors deer to deer. And, and I know that there's this um, understanding out there or this message out there that especially adult bucks can have two times the likelihood of being infected as, as other deer in the herd. Now, that's, that's true, But it's not because there's anything unique about them being you know, adult bucks, it's because of their behavior and the fact they've been in the landscape for a long time. So when we start looking at designing surveillance strategies, what deer should we be looking at to give us the best chance of finding the disease? Across the board, if you haven't found it, adult bucks are going to be your your best sample to look at. Um, Fawns are not going to be as valuable in terms of surveillance. Not to say they can't get CWD, we know they can. But in any given population, the amount of fawns that are CWD positive is going to be substantially fewer than the amount of older animals. And so, again, it's how do you design surveillance strategies so that they're smarter, so that we can, we can maximize our ability to find it. And then you talked about the geographic scale. Yeah, that's a challenge. So several states start going, OK, we're going to do a rotating, sort of a rotating scheme around the state and, you know, take it region by region around a state, break it up that way. Other states have looked at it as what on our landscape, what are those risk factors that make one area more at risk for CWD than another? Typically those risk factors include um, even urban areas. You know, you do, have, you do tend to have more people, more non-resident hunters, depending on your regulations, they might be bringing things back from other states. We look at, we do look at prevalence of, of captive servant facilities on the landscape as a risk factor for wanting to do surveillance. And I know you had a whole nother podcast about, about that industry, but that is a, an accepted risk factor that was came out of some work out of New York as one of those risk factors for where we wanna look for this disease. Um, river corridors has been posed as another one. Proximity to other known positives, especially if it's on your state border. So either way, we can really break the state down to different levels of risk geographically, as well as different levels of risk finding the disease within the herd. So that can really help inform surveillance strategies. Unfortunately, it can make for a really confusing communications message. Why we're testing these animals here and why not these animals there? Man, that's a nightmare. And that's again when we need that kind of expertise for outreach and communication staff to help us pass those messages along.
1: That's a that's a big ball of wax, right? <laughs> I'll just say we keep on un-, un we keep trying to get to some big ball of waxes here. But let's let's ask you kind of a a broader question because I think we know that this is so much a people management thing too, right? Cause we need people to understand it because they're the ones that are going to impact the herds and hunters and so on. So out of all the things that, that have happened with this, you know, what do you wish that the agencies or what do the agencies wish the public hunters, decision makers, you know, people like that knew About CWD management, what do you just wish that they just knew, so that they could do this the best that we could possibly do it?
3: Yeah, it's so hard. Um, You know, as an agency, as an agency representative, I guess, for lack of a better word, I mean, as as somebody who works for an organization that is full of really good people, really smart people. Um really just trying to do the very best they can for the resources we all care about. I wish people understood that the second I say I'm from a state agency, you can almost feel the you can almost feel this like underlying mistrust. And that is terrible. I think think that is the, the crux of many problems is that there is this lack of trust this 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 perception out there that that state agencies have some kind of conspiracy boiled up about this disease, or or it it fits another agenda, and uh, and I think that's distracting. I think it's not only inaccurate but hurtful um, and distracting, and it really impedes our collective progress and disease management. So I think if there was one thing that I'd want to communicate, it's that man. I'm no different from you guys in terms of what you want the outcomes to be, you know, and and certainly there are just really good people across the board, inside agencies, outside of agencies, whoever you work for, I don't think matters. The fact of the matter is we're all dedicated to the same thing. And the second that we can get on the same page and and pool our resources, the second we're all going to be a heck of a lot better off. There's, um, God, there was a saying by Margaret Mead. I'm just going to, I'm going to say it here, but you should never, ever underestimate the, the power of a small group of committed people to change the world. In fact, that's the only thing that ever has. And with CWD, like, man, if we're not on the same page, we're going to be dead in the water. So yeah, I think that's kind of what I'd like to say.
2: Very well said. Okay. We asked this, we've tried to ask this of all of our guests. I think we forgot a couple, but uh, looking back on the time, even it could be beyond the time that you've been involved with the disease, but what's one thing that you either wish you would have done differently or just in general that would have been done or happened differently relative to CWD?
3: like how much time do you have for me to air my grievances how many times we do you keep really giving like, do you really these have me these
1: humdingers, to... <laughs> don't we <Yeah.
3: laughs> Let it rip yeah there was a oh man there's a lot of red pen on my 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 credentials No, um one of the things i i wish i'd done differently so um one of the things that i think w- set us back a little bit was the fact that the the uh chronic wasting disease became such a a hot button topic so quickly and while I am so grateful for the increased awareness i mean the awareness is 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 awesome right we we've all got to get on the same page with this it became a little bit um, borderline hysteria right where it was like this is a the zombie disease the zombie deer disease that is going to take us all over and and by the way it's going to cross over into people and it became it just became this hysterical, almost mania. And I think that's, I think that's quieted down. At least I feel like it has. But when it did, then that automatically was like, well, this is just a made up thing. So I think that set us all back as well. I think the hysteria around CWD becoming this just like crazy thing that's going to kill us all in the next year, like it fed itself and it became this festering ball of like, just come on, like, (laughs) It's a chronic disease. It's not going to take us all down in the next month. I, man, if it does, I will eat my own chew. But I'm just saying, I think that there was so much like, um, so much attention and it became a little bit, a little bit too, you know, crazy, honestly, like maniacally crazy, like Joker and Batman laughing crazy. And and we all just need to take a collective deep breath and and, and take it for what it is. I mean, CWD is a disease. I get it. But it is not this like malevolent, you know, witch in the corner who wants to take your children away from you. It is just a disease. And and the second that we figure out the best ways to to prevent its spread or to prevent its introduction, to mitigate its spread, to, you know, remove positive animals, the second that we actually take it for what it is, I think we're going to be better off. So that might have been a misstep of me, too, because it was, you know, I talk about it a lot. I'm in CWD discussions a lot. And so it, it can slowly permeate every facet of your life. And I, I think um, that can hurt us.
1: Well, we hope you get some breaks from CWD and it's not in every facet of your life, first off. But uh, we're nearing the end here, Kelly. And one of the things we also like to do is, is ask our guests before we let them go, you know, any any parting shots, anything we didn't cover, any anything you think folks should know that we didn't quite get to you
3: man the whole like anything we should any anything we didn't cover yeah we we talked a, a lot i mean i feel like we covered a lot of stuff but there's there's so much to it i mean there really is you know we didn't even cover some of the the research that's going on right now i think that's an important thing to really realize or recognize um that our understanding of this disease continues to evolve and our management actions are going to continue to evolve our tools will grow and uh you know i i I can't underestimate the importance of that and not or maybe overestimate. I can't figure that out right now. Either way, I cannot understate the importance of that. How about that? The fact that where we are right now, I truly believe that we're gonna know more and have better tools in the future. And so in the meantime, just asking people just to, to to stay engaged, to stay aware, and please just stay involved in in CWD management because it's not going away and and I am optimistic that we will have better ways to combat this disease in the future
2: maybe we can bring the e-word back out later <laughs>
3: yeah,
2: I hope later so. on down the road
3: I will I will get a tattoo I'll, I'll put it out there right now I will get eradication tattooed somewhere that is a terrible promise to make but man we gotta if that's the incentive that we need to stay engaged I'll do it man I will Yep. I will take that take that response. Got it on record
1: I think Ashley and I would join you if it was, if it was a real possibility. Nice. Uh, well, Kelly, <laughs> thank you so much. It's been fun. It's been, it's been insightful. Uh, you know, you're, you're a warrior on this thing and and we're just so you know honored that you spent some time with us and that you keep doing this work. And uh, we're going to keep telling the story and keep uh, plugging away towards solutions and opportunities to improve things. And Uh, you know, just, just thank you. That's all I can really say. And, and I I think folks are really going to enjoy this episode and going to learn a little bit more about how, how this is being handled from the agencies and beyond. So with that, we'll, we'll bid you farewell and, and take care and thank you so much.
3: Yeah. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you guys. This was great. Thanks for having
2: me. The Chronic Wasting Disease Chronicles,
1: a production of NWF Outdoors and Artemis.